surprise, it's still me. Uh, <laughs> wasn't the plan, but uh, one of our worship leaders got sick, and so I got the privilege to sing with you guys this morning. Uh, I guess that'd be a good segue to say we have opportunities on our worship team, and uh, they would be appreciated because you don't want to be here the week that Tanner has to sing and play, or <laughs> sing and preach at this <laughs> If you, guys, if you guys don't know me, my name is Dustin Snyder. I'm on staff here at South Point. I do get the privilege of working with our worship team and also in our student ministry, and so that's a, a long-winded way of saying I have the best job at South Point. I get to have the most fun out of everyone. Don't tell everyone else on staff, but it's true. Um, and sometimes I also get to come up here and talk to you guys, which I always love doing, and that's what we're doing this morning. Uh, if you haven't been with us, right now we're in the series that we're calling Signs. We're reading through the book of John, a disciple of Jesus, and he wrote a biography about the life of Jesus, and in it he includes seven signs, seven miracles that Jesus performed uh, while he was on earth. And we're reading through these miracles, we're reading through these signs, um, exactly what I, I prayed about with the intention of trying to get to know Jesus better, because we believe that there is a life-changing power in Jesus' name and his blood. We believe that Jesus died on a cross for us and the sins of humanity, and then three days later, he raised back to life, and we believe that when you say yes to him, you get a brand new life, and you're never the same again, and so we open this book every week just seeking to know him better, so that's what we're doing this week, and, uh, and this week, the, the sign that we're reading about, it's, it's one that's pretty popular, probably even a lot of people who aren't believers have likely heard of this, um, but before we read it, I want to pose this question to you, and I, and I want each of you guys to think of this as we go into this reading of scripture, uh, and the reason for this is because we exist as a community, and you can be a part of this community, and you can come and worship and hang out with us, but when it comes down to it, your relationship with God is between you and him. It's what you invest into it. No one else can do it for you, and so I believe that every time we open up this book, we should be evaluating these words against our own life and, and trying to figure out how's God calling to me to respond to this, and so before we read this pa passage, I want to pose this question to you, and the question is this. The question is, what would a miracle look like for you today? When you consider the God that we worship, the God that we have this relationship with, who he is and how he loves us, are you actively praying for miracles? Are you praying at all for miracles? And, and if you are, what do those miracles look like? Or have we become so content with fighting on our own that we forget that God even performs miracles or that he's trying to actively do something new and powerful in our life. What would a miracle look like for you today? And are you praying for miracles? Let's, let's pray together before we get into God's word because I, I think we need it. God, you are good and your word is good. And we know that you're a God who performs miracles and we know that you're a God who does things that we'll never understand. God, I pray that you use these words right now to speak into our hearts, God, and don't let a single one of us miss what you have for us and let us walk out of this place with Jesus having stuck in our minds and in our hearts so much so that we can't shake him, that we can't get him out of our head because he's that good. Jesus, we love you. We trust you. We pray in your name. Amen. So if you have your Bible with you, you can open up to John chapter 6. You're going to be in John chapter 6 this morning, and if you don't, don't worry, we have the words here up on the screen with you, you can read along with us, but John chapter 6, we're going to be in verses 1 through 15, and this is the miracle that we're reading about now, it says this, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain 
and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. And then there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. There's a lot in this passage that we could look at. Um, but the thing that I want to look at this morning is this interaction that Jesus has with his disciples, this conversation that they have. And so I want to dig into that. You see, this problem presents itself. We have 5,000 people, which is actually 5,000 men and their families, wives and children, which means the number is likely closer to somewhere between 15 to 20,000 people, about a basketball stadium full of people, if you can picture that. And these people need to be fed. And Jesus looks at his disciple, Philip, and he says, what are we going to do about this? And Philip, he quickly crunches some numbers, which to me is like almost a miracle in itself, because I don't know about you, but me and math just like, we don't match up. But Philip crunches some numbers, and uh, he says, we need 200 denarii. And now 200 denarii is about six months worth of wages, six months worth of working, just to buy enough food for everyone to even have a couple bites. But it doesn't really matter anyway, because it says Jesus asked him this question to test him. So apparently... Jesus is out here asking trick questions. And so thank you for that, Jesus. It's not enough that Scripture compares us to sheep because we're so feeble-minded, but Jesus is also out here slinging trick questions just to throw us off. Now, we, we, we use trick questions, too. I think it's one of the ways we can see that we're made in God's image. For example, if your wife ever asks you what you want for dinner, that's a trick question. It's a test, because I promise you that there is no way that you are getting pizza and wings again, buddy, so you would better come up with a better answer. But you don't know you're supposed to come up with a better answer. That's why it's a trick question. And then, and then there's an extra layer of trickiness in there if she says, I don't care what we eat, because she does care. She does care. It's all a trick. But whereas we use trick questions to manipulate, Jesus is asking his question to make a point. And so it makes sense for us to evaluate this question and also how his disciples respond to it. And there is a correct response the disciples could have given, by the way. There is a correct response. They could have said something to the effect of, well, Jesus, we've seen you turn water into wine. We've seen you made someone who hadn't walked in 38 years get up and walk again. And we've seen you heal countless sick. Jesus, it seems like you specialize in the impossible, and so to feed all these people, that would be impossible. So I would say that our best bet for feeding them would be for us to just kind of sit back and let you do what it is that you do. 
I mean, even the devil knows that Jesus can do anything. You can read in another portion of Scripture where Jesus is walking through the desert and the devil tempts him literally to turn rocks into bread, which I didn't even know was a part of Jesus' repertoire, but apparently he can do that too. And I always thought that Jesus turning uh, rocks into bread would have been kind of a cool way to add a little bit of pizzazz to this miracle. You know, Jesus just breaks out the finger guns and just starts pointing at rocks and like, just bread everywhere, just like, Philip, does this smell like a bakery in here to you, or is that just, but his disciples aren't thinking this way. It doesn't matter how many times they've seen Jesus do the impossible. It doesn't matter how many times they've heard Jesus speak. It doesn't matter that they're spending every day literally with God in the flesh. They're met with this seemingly impossible situation to, to which Jesus asks, what do we do? And their conclusion is, well, it can't happen. And so is that also us? When things get difficult or when things get bleak or when circumstances go sideways or the way that we don't expect, when seemingly impossible situations arise and Jesus asks us, what do we do is our response, Jesus, it can't happen. You see, I think there's two major things that we can learn about Jesus by reading this passage, and I believe the first is in this interaction with his disciples. Because you see, Jesus, his trick question is actually doubly tricky, if doubly is a word. Jesus' trick question is doubly tricky because the answer to Jesus' question is actually hidden in his question. Because you see, Jesus doesn't ask Philip, hey, what are you going to do? He asks, what are we going to do? And so the first thing that we can take away from Jesus in this passage is that Jesus wants to take, or he wants to turn your me problem into a we problem. Jesus wants to take your me problem and turn it into a we problem. This is a clear picture of how Jesus operates. Because to be a follower of Jesus doesn't mean that we simply take Jesus' teachings and try to live our life by them. Jesus isn't Tony Robbins or some other motivational speaker. This is so much more than that. We're talking about taking the living and breathing God and making him the foundation of your life and inviting him to have his way over all of it. So Jesus doesn't want you to do things for him. He's inviting you to do things with him. You're walking with Jesus. That's this whole deal. And so it only makes sense that Jesus wants to take your me problem and turn it into, into a we problem. Now there's this passage in the book of Corinthians written by the Apostle Paul, and it says this. It says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Now this passage it's really, it's warning Jesus' followers against the danger of surrounding yourself or partnering with people who aren't Jesus' followers. And I want to show you this picture. Uh, this picture is what it looks like to be unequally yoked. Essentially, you're taking a weak or lazy bull and you're trying to pair them with a strong bull. And, and they used to think that if you paired a weak bull with a strong bull, then eventually the weak one would have no choice but to get stronger that the, the stronger one would like spur them along and eventually the weak one would start moving and by the end of the process you'd end up with two strong bulls. But what they actually found is that in every single situation that the weak bull ended up wearing down the stronger bull. And so instead of having two strong bulls, at the end you had two weak ones. And, and the way Paul uses this illustration is to say, hey, hey, if you're a believer, don't fool yourself into thinking that you can hang out with only non-believers and you're only going to rub off on them. There's a danger that they could rub off on you as well. And there's, there's a lot of truth to that. But we can take this illustration of Jesus, or of uh, unequal yoking, 
and we can apply it to Jesus. Wanting to take your me problem and make it into a we problem. Because as it relates to Jesus, when we say yes to him, we are all of a sudden unequally yoked. Meaning we are the weaker bull and we have very little to offer. And this cart in the back, not this little boy. This little boy's cute, but he's not a part of the, the conversation. But this cart in the back, this cart in the back represents any struggle that we could be going up against in this life. This cart represents the greatest storms this life has to offer. And when impossible circumstances and situations arise, man, we have absolutely no power to make this cart move on our own. Case in point, Philip trying to feed these 15,000 plus people on his own, he is never making that cart move. So what is it on your cart that you can't make move? What's on your cart that you can't make move? I mean, maybe it's money, right? Maybe, maybe things are tight, and maybe you're looking at your, situ- your situation, and you're like, man, my, my bills add up to this much, and, and the amount that I have to pay them only adds up to this much, and, and I don't see how I'm going to make it work, and unless I stumble into some kind of new job or a raise or I unexpectedly stumble into money, um, I, I'm out of options. I don't know what I'm going to do. Or maybe there's some kind of addiction that's gripped you, and it's, man, I've tried so many times, so many different methods, but time and time again, I slip back into it. And as much as I want to be free from this, maybe I just don't have it in me. Maybe I'm just not strong enough. Maybe I'm just always going to be like this, and so why should I even try? Why would this time be any different? Or maybe it's in your marriage or your relationship, and there aren't enough counselors in the world to fix it. And there aren't enough heart-to-heart conversations because every conversation just turns into a fight. And man, you don't listen to me anyway, and there's no hope for this. We have what's called irreconcilable differences. And and man, we just can't work it out. We're too far gone. We aren't compatible anymore. Or maybe maybe it's your kids, and you're in this place where where they're starting to live their life, and maybe it's not really the life that you would have chosen for them, and it's not the life you believe God's calling them to. Maybe they don't even want anything to do with God or maybe they don't want anything to do with you and you're just trying not to throw your hands up and give up hope, but what else am I going to do? Or maybe there's some sickness or some pain and you don't really do anymore. Or maybe it's mental health or anxiety and, or, or de- depression and it's literally like crushing you into the ground and you're having a hard time even get up in the morning anymore because it's too much. Or maybe there's some physical sickness or pain for you or someone that you care about and and you're just tired of feeling this way and you're tired of trying to go to doctors all the time and you're tired of seeking out answers and everything's just starting to feel hopeless. I mean, this is just scratching the surface of the kinds of things that a person could be dealing with that would feel insurmountable. This is only a taste of the kinds of circumstances that would cause someone to look around and take stock and come to the conclusion of, man, this might actually be hopeless. And on your own, your conclusion is probably right. Because the truth is, no matter how much society preaches that we control our own destiny or that we have it within us to control things or that if we just work hard enough, we can make things move. No matter how much society preaches that, the truth is there are situations that will happen in our life that you just aren't built for. I mean, God literally says, apart from me, You can do nothing, and yet we keep raising our hands and saying, yep, but I'm going to try. And then we work ourselves and worry ourselves sick, trying to make something happen, trying to make it work. I'm going to turn it all around. But if you've ever encountered tragedy or hardship, or if you're in that place right now, then you already understand the truth, that there are some things in this life that we just aren't equipped to deal with on our own. 
And I understand what it's like to feel completely helpless, man, I do. And to have no control over seemingly anything that happens and to feel like things are starting to spiral. And I understand the anxiety and worry of coming to terms with the truth that there are situations that we can't fight our way out of. And I know how heavy and how difficult that is. But if I'm being honest, when you really start to unpack it, it can almost be kind of relieving. Because when you start to understand that not everything depends on you, then you start to realize that not everything depends on you. You know what I'm saying? And you can rest when you're not trying to be the hero all the time, or you can take a breath when you're not trying to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders all the time. I mean, because what are we really called to do? I mean, we're talking about this unequal yoking with Jesus. Like, what falls on us and what falls on him? I think really at the end of the day, we're called to follow him and shine a light on him in everything we do in all situations. The Bible says if we'll just pursue him, if we'll just worship him, we'll just rest in him, if we'll just commit our work to him and commit our relationships to him, if we'll just chase after him, that he'll carry us through. If we'll just follow him, shine a light on him. And if, if I'm being honest, a lot of times us shining a light on Jesus, it looks more like a little kid who's helping their dad work on the car. Like they, they know nothing about the car. They know nothing about how it works. Most of the time, they can't even shine the flashlight in the right place. It's shining all over the place. But what do all great parents do when the job's done? They high-five their kids and they say, good job, buddy. We did it. But there was no we. The role that the child played was so insignificant, but a great parent, he takes the victory and he makes it both theirs and their child. He brings them along. And so this is what it looks like to surrender to Jesus, to be unequally yoked. And so the question is, if Jesus wants to take your me problem and turn it into a we problem, will you let him do that? Will you invite him in to whatever's going on in your life? And then the second thing we learn about Jesus in this story. Well, the second thing, I mean, if you look at how the disciples respond, Jesus asked them, what are we going to do? And how do the disciples respond? Well, Philip, like we said, he starts crunching the numbers. And he says, we're going to need six months worth of wages for everybody to even get a bite. It can't happen. Then we have this other disciple in the story, Andrew, and he just jumps into action. Maybe one of these action people. And he starts trying to make something happen. Apparently he starts confiscating lunchboxes from little kids. <laughs> he jumps into action and he... And he comes to Jesus and he says, there, there's five loaves and a couple of fish. Can't happen. So they're presented with this scenario. Jesus says, what are we going to do? And the first thing they do is start looking around at their resources. Philip says, we don't have enough money. Andrew says, we don't have enough food. And they're both right, by the way. There's not enough money or food. It's a fact. They don't have the resources. And yet, by the end of the story, not only does everyone eat, but there are leftovers. Twelve baskets worth of leftovers, which brings us to the second thing that we learn about Jesus. And this is a big one. The second thing we learn about Jesus is that Jesus doesn't always work the way we expect him to. One more time, Jesus doesn't always work the way we expect him to. I mean, it is so easy for us to forget that we serve an all-powerful, supernatural, unlimited God, and it's so easy for a problem to present itself and for us to immediately start trying to figure out what's possible and then also start ruling out possibilities. 
And it is so easy for us to try to decide how God should be moving. To think that we know better. But what's it say in Proverbs? It says this in the book of Proverbs. It says in Proverbs 19, verse 21, it says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Which means what? Well, simply stated, it means, and maybe you've heard this, you've heard the phrase that man makes plans and God does what? He laughs. Meaning we can't control really anything as much as we try to tell ourselves that we can. And then in, in Isaiah, God says this. God says this in Isaiah. He says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's saying, I don't work the way you do and I don't think the way you do. Even when you're all worked up and you're all upset and, and you think you know the best way, I don't think and work the way that you do and I need you to trust me and understand that I'm in control. And then in Job, if you know Job's story, Job, after he's lost everything, after he's had everything taken away from him, he comes to God, and essentially what he says to God is, is make it make sense, God. God, I've done everything you've asked me to do, and I've still lost everything. And so you're going to give me some answers. Makes these demands of God, and God responds to Job's demands, and this is what he says to Job. It says, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this? that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. This is God saying this. God saying, you have no idea how any of this works, and you have no idea how I work. You don't see anything but what's immediately in front of you. But listen, I see you exactly where you are, right in your circumstance, and I also see eternity at the same time, and I see everything because I created everything. I see the things you've never even considered before. And then, and then God goes on for five chapters. Five chapters he goes on talking to Job all about creation and the way that things work and the way that he's designed things and things that Job has never even considered. Because that's how big God is. And so I'll say it again that it's so easy for us to forget that we serve an all-powerful, supernatural, unlimited God. But you say, if I can't understand it, and how can I be okay with it? And if all I see is hurt all the time, how can I move forward? Which brings us to one of the most important promises, at least for me, one that I hang on, that God makes to us, a promise that makes it make sense, that it tells us that God not only has the power to do anything and he not only works in ways that we don't understand and not only does he work in ways that we often wouldn't, but it tells us why God does. It says this, says this in Romans. You've likely read this before. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So God can do anything, and he works in ways we'll never understand, in ways that we never would. And what is he doing with all that power? The Bible says, He's using it all for good. But let's stop right here and define what that actually means because that phrase, God works everything for good, it gets thrown around an awful lot and a little loosely, if you ask me. But what does it mean that God works everything for good? Does this mean that if you fully trust God that he is going to work out 
your situation the way that you want, the way you're praying for, does it mean that if you trust Jesus that the money's on the way and that the relationship's going to be restored and that healing is going to happen? Well, no, that's, that's something called the health and wealth gospel, if you've never heard of that. And what it promises, it can't deliver, because as anyone who's been following Jesus can tell you in Scripture, will tell you there's stuff that's going to happen in this life. Suffering is going to happen, and for some, suffering in abundance. And so there are going to be moments in life where you have struggles, and things don't make sense, or they don't go the way that you thought, and that's just unavoidable. Even if the health and wealth gospel could promise or could deliver what it promises, health and wealth, well, those things can't really satisfy you anyway. I'm going to be the one to tell you that. They're fragile. They're fleeting. They're temporary. And when we're looking for those things, what are we really pursuing? We're pursuing security and identity and acceptance. We're looking for something. And the thing that we're looking for, the real prize, that's found in Jesus. That's found in being fully known and fully loved by Jesus. And the beauty of that is you can't take that away. That's forever. And so what would be the bigger miracle? Would, would the, the bigger miracle be for you to get your hands on some money? Or would it be for you to come to a place where you are fully trusting and depending on God? I mean, would that not be a miracle? I mean, we all want that miracle. But more likely than not, it's going to require you to encounter something that you can't handle on your own, and that's the part that we don't want. We want to stay comfortable. But we got to understand that God can use our struggles to refine our spirit and to strengthen us and to show us that he's always with us in all situations. We can learn that God is trustworthy. And I'm telling you, to learn that God is trustworthy, that's a miracle. Knowing that God's going to take your struggle and he's going to use it for good, even if it's not the good that you thought needed to come out of it. Because whether you've realized it or not, God sees everything we can't. And he's making decisions based on things that we can't see all the time. And he sees you in your moment. He sees you in your heartbreak. But he also sees in light of eternity. And he knows what's best for us. And we'll trust him. And we think we know what's best for us. But, I mean, if you're being honest, how many times have you thought in a moment that you knew what was best for you? And then, like, years later, you looked back and you were like, man, I'm glad it didn't work out that way. That can be in so many different situations, jobs, relationships, all these things that we thought, man, that was it. And then later on down the road, like, man, I'm so glad that wasn't it. Sometimes we're a little off, but God's never off. And we can believe that no matter what we're encountering. I'll give you an example of how God can use anything for good, at least in my own life. I can speak semi-personally on this. Because I'm someone who prayed every day, multiple times a day, for God to heal my mom miraculously of cancer, if you know my family's story. I'm someone who prayed every day, multiple times a day, for God to miraculously heal my mom of cancer. And man, if you could have heard some of these prayers, some of these declarations of healing, and some of these declarations for a miracle and we believe that God could do it, that he could heal her, and we still maintain that God can heal anyone in that situation miraculously. And the truth is, God did do a miracle in my mom's life. It just wasn't the one we were expecting. See, because God took a woman who followed him, and the man, he turned her into a warrior. And I mean a warrior who prayed differently and who loved 
differently and who took every opportunity to love people and share the love of God with them and who was so thankful for everything she was given in her life. And man, the number of lives impacted through this tragedy, that was a miracle. And towards the end, man, she wasn't really coherent about almost anything and it was really hard to understand her most of the time. But when she talked about God, this clarity would come into her voice and she didn't say a single thing that didn't make sense. And her voice was clear and powerful every time she spoke about Jesus. Man, that's a miracle. And then she took her final breath and God healed her completely and brought her home. You guys, what a miracle. You see, the truth is we get so caught up in our struggle and in our circumstances and the problem that it's easy for us to forget that God's trying to do something good with it. And he wants to use it for miracles. Or we get so caught up in what we think good looks like that, man, miracles can just pass us by left and right. And we can just miss them or we can just miss Jesus. And we get lost. And so we aren't praying for God to reveal the good work he's trying to do. And we aren't praying for God to make our struggle a part of building his kingdom. And we likely aren't even praying for God to take the struggle and to use it to build our relationship with him. Because sometimes we get caught up in one prayer and that prayer is, God, get me out of here. But sometimes God is up to something bigger than that. Something that we can't see. Something that can transform lives. Something that can transform generations. Something that can just transform you into the type of person you need to be. And so, man, I'm sorry if we read this story about the loaves and the fishes and you thought I was going to come up here and preach some sermon about physical abundance. But in all honesty... What Jesus has to offer is so much more valuable than any physical healing or blessing, man. Jesus is enough. And his love is enough. Can I read you one of my favorite passages in this book? I just want to read this to you, and then after that, man, I promise that I'm done. It says this. It says this in Romans chapter 8, verses 31. It says, What then... Shall we say to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What does that mean to me? That means that even if you take my health, even if you take my blessings, even if you take all my money and leave me penniless, and even if you strip me of every worldly comfort this life has to offer, that because Jesus chose me, that because he died for me, because he loves me, because he set me apart and he dwells within me, that, man, I'm going to be all right. Whew. 
Man, so you tell me, what's the bigger miracle? For some worldly struggles to suddenly disappear? Or for a person to be so fulfilled and so loved and so secure in Jesus that those same worldly struggles start to lose all their power? Even death loses its sting. That Jesus taking some bread and fish and using them to feed 15,000 people, man, that is pretty awesome. But Jesus going to a cross and using only his blood to wash away the sin and shame of billions, that's inconceivable. It's impossible, but it happened. And if that can happen, man, nothing is off the table. So pray, and pray for the miracle you want, and pray like you believe anything is possible because it is. And then also say a prayer of thanks that you can be confident that God is taking whatever you're going through and he's using it for good. And then pray another prayer of thankfulness that God's definition of good is always better than ours. And then if you're ready, you can pray a prayer of boldness that says, Jesus, because I have you, nothing in this world can touch me anymore. Man, that's a miracle. Let's pray. Jesus, to be known by you and to be loved by you. We can't begin to understand the plans that you, you've laid out for us. We can't begin to understand the love that you have for us, God. And it's so easy for us just to get caught up in whatever our current circumstances. And so easy for us to get lost in the moment and lost in our own despair that we can forget that there is an all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-loving God who is just trying to walk through it with us. That you're inviting us to take our problems and you're inviting us to, to let you into them so we don't have to carry anything alone. We don't have to walk through anything in this life alone because, God, we know that there are situations we aren't equipped for. God, I pray that we be a community of people I pray that we'd be a community of people who are so in love with you, who are so caught up with you, so caught up in chasing after you that these worldly struggles, even the biggest ones, they start to lose their power over our lives. And we can understand that the one who's fighting for us, the one who is, who is interceding for us in heaven, man, we, we can understand that you have power over all things. God, we can trust you. And I pray for every person in this room that whatever it is that they're going through, that they can lean into the good that you're trying to work through it. That they can lean into your love. They can lean into your promises and your strength. Your Bible says that you will hold them up with your right hand, God. The Bible says that nothing can separate us from your love. These promises, God, they're true. And so can we lean into them? Can we trust them? Can we trust you? God, help us to be that community of people. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that we have an advocate who is always interceding for us, who is always fighting for us, and we don't have to be good. We don't have to be strong. We don't even have to be able to stand. We just have to be able to surrender to you, and you work all things out. Jesus, we love you. We trust you. We pray in your name, in your name alone. Amen.